This is writer and game designer Robin D. Laws. And this is game designer and writer Kenneth Height. And this is our podcast, Ken and Robin Talk About Stuff. Recorded in front of a live audience at Dragon Me. Amid the impersonal grandeur of the Hotel Novotel Hammersmith. In the autonomous Principality of London. Where the Queen says we can have a birthday party she isn't using anymore. And we have our time slot back. Bandwidth <laughs> and travel considerations brought to you by Pelgrane Press. We can't predict topics. But they might just include. Tabletop and adventure gaming. Elliptony. Time travel. Cinema. Occultism. That weird article you forwarded us. And of course, food. Food. Hopping vampires tried to stop it. Transformed animals conspired to block it. Evil eunuchs issued proclamations against it. Armani-clad assassins put it in their crosshairs. Laudably virtuous monks considered a possible threat to spiritual discipline. But thanks to the gun-toting, fist-flying efforts of your favorite scrappy underdogs at Atlas Games, Feng Shui 2... Robin's acclaimed and recently improved Game of Action Thrills has been reprinted and is again headed to stores. Import the excitement of the Hong Kong Action Cinema Masters to your role-playing table. And when in doubt, do as the jammers do. And blow things up. Blow things up. Blow things up. Uh, so, Ken, uh, while yes. I'm digging for the Nerd Trope card, yes, yes. Uh, would you like to uh, encourage the Patreon backers to stand up and be Please, recognized? Please, Patreon backers, beloved Patreon backers all, if you would stand and be recognized for your selfless, hedonay heroic activity. <laughs> Get a round of applause for our Patreon backers. <laughs> I'm not saying they're better than you, but they are standing and you are clapping. <laughs> So those of you who know the uh, uh, live show format, uh, we have a number of nerd cards. We have a number of trope cards. What we do is we select one from each pile completely at random. And boy, are these piles randomized today. Yeah. And uh, Uh, Designed, by the way, by friend of the show, Cal of Tate, we should mention. Yes, we've just mentioned that. And I'm just going to draw a trope card and a nerd card. And I've never met you before, is that correct? You've never met me before. You're completely unaware of my activities and our prior financial entanglements. Hey, Dragon Eats, if you're in cosplay, we have a cosplay photo shoot out in the foyer at 1.30, and then they'll be parading around. Uh, So go check it out. If you're in costume, go and join in. Uh, So we have two choices uh, to present our sound man. Uh, We can ask him when he uh, puts this out for the delectation of others to cut that out. Or we can ask him to leave it in to show the rinky-dink side of Dragon Meat. That's right. <laughs> the amateur gardening show atmosphere that we struggle against. Right. But that has given me time to draw the nerd card Norman Conquest. Norman Conquest. And the uh, trope card Hindu Mythology. Hindu Mythology. <laughs> okay. Okay. All right, I suppose it is an uh, obvious statement that uh, Hindu mythology begins with the uh, Mahabharata, the great uh, war between the two uh, clans alike in dignity, uh, one that begins with Y and one that does not begin with Y. And you can look it up yourself on Wikipedia. I'm not, I'm, you're not the boss of me. Um, the, uh, and then these two clans fought a war that began, uh, oddly enough, over a dice game uh, that was rigged by uh, the clan that did not begin with a Y as an attempt to steal everything belonging 
to uh, the other and at that time dominant clan. This, you might say, what does this have to do with the Norman Conquest, Ken? There's no dice games, but there is. Uh, there is a famous dice game that happened between Olaf of Norway and Olaf of Sweden over the uh, ownership of an island between Norway and Sweden. And also, who is the best Olaf? And also, who is the best Olaf? That was the secondary uh, standard. And um, uh, Saint Olaf, and I guess I'm giving away the ending, um, <laughs> of Norway won when the dice miraculously split as he rolled them, giving himself a perfect 14 on two six-sided dice, an achievement that surely indicated that the island belonged to Norway. This was a magical dice transaction that completed the circuit from the rigged dice transaction at the beginning of the Mahabharata, and thus enveloped the North Sea economy in the Mahabharata world. Because, as you know, uh, when the pattern is laid down that a hocus dice game creates a giant uh, uh, continent-spanning war, you only have to look at a hocus dice game that creates a giant continent-spanning war. Continent admittedly is Europe, so, you know, whatever. But the, uh, the, the uh, Norse and Swedish kings began a series of competitions that led, uh, not least, to Harald Hardrada invading England in uh, 1060, 1066, but earlier 1066, the other 1066, uh, in an attempt to seize the throne of England, much as the forces of uh, the guys that eventually won uh, in India, who self-identified later as the Kshatriyas, the warrior caste, uh, launched their war at, uh, during the Maharata to start the, um, uh, the, the great uh, sundering and whatnot of, of the Indian uh, society. This pattern recapitulates. So uh, the, the fact that the pattern recapitulates with Harold Hardrada then draws in Norman, uh, 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 William the Conqueror, William the Bastard, to uh, pick up the pieces, basically to come in at the last minute and snake a victory out from underneath Harold Hardrada, who sadly died at the Battle of Stamford Bridge. So we have a William the Bastard snaking in at the end of someone's game to steal a victory, steal experience points, and this act of uh, hubris, this act of violating the sacred dice game, because by rights, of course, if Harold is dead, it should have gone to the kings of Sweden as the other contestants in the magical dice game. Um, William the Bastard's snaking the, uh, the victory away... It says Bastard right, right in it. Right in his name. Um, ...indicated that at that point, the destinies of uh, England and India were intertwined because William the Bastard held an illegal dice-based victory that had to be expunged by the conquest of India. So the uh, reason that uh, the English went into India and played one side against each other in a game similar to chess but different was, was driven by the desire to find the sacred dice that had been uh, used at the beginning of the Mahabharata so that the kings of England could then basically, uh, what, do I, what do you want to say, roll without the GM looking <laughs> and uh, announce to the universe that they were in fact Rightwise, uh, lords not just of England, which remember they stole from the Norwegians, but also uh, of India. And it is this quest for these magical and mysterious dice that drove English imperialism uh, into the East. Uh, the desire then by uh, the various uh, gods of India to not allow that nonsense creates the great tension. So uh, the, the English, uh, the, the hated English, uh, become the, um, uh, the people who are attempting to work against the gods by chicanery and malfeasance, while the gods are constrained in their actions. And so it's an interesting system by which the uh, Hindu gods have to operate within the pattern, because that is what they're defending. If they acted outside the pattern, then they would lose. Uh, whereas the uh, English get to operate outside the pattern because they're a bunch of cheaters, but they don't have godlike power. 
And this is the situation into which you may hurl your player characters, will they or nil they, uh, in the search for uh, ancient magical dice. The ancient magical dice of India are made from a particular kind of nut, uh, uh, so it would grow on a particular kind of tree, and it is the search for that tree, which obviously would be the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, the one that is not the apple tree, uh, but the other tree. Right, because it, the fruit of the apple tree is, is round. Right. The fruit of this tree has 20 sides. 20 sides. I <laughs> close <laughs> yeah. and, and so the um, uh, And so the quest for the, uh, the tree on which grew the dice of destiny becomes uh, the ultimate uh, goal. This, of course, is why um, uh, the Kew Gardens are created in an attempt to bring every specimen of tree from all over the world uh, to London, where it can be controlled by the illegitimate usurping right. uh, uh, Normans and the, their The original heirs. instructions was to make a garden for a cube, right. but it was misheard. Right, exactly. <laughs> yeah. It became the cube gardens. Yeah. Um, and, and that's the sort of chicanery that they've been pulling forever. So the, uh, so the ongoing uh, contest, then, is uh, the attempt to figure out a way, as the Hindu gods, to be able to divinely rewrite the rules so that they can put paid to the English uh, once and for all. And this is your nerd trope at Dragon Meat 2019. Don't go go looking it up, but I think that the nut is called a vipitaka. I believe that's the name of the nut. That's my takeaway from the Mahabharata, (laughs) the name of the nut tree. Yes. Uh, well, and, uh, you know, it, it, any form of mythology has a lot of nuts in it. It does, so, it does a lot. Um, By the great gold worm, is that an escalation die I hear? Why, yes, it's making us more powerful and awesome F-20 adventurers by the round. Well, I think we're going to need it because there's a whole lot of fantasy action coming our way as 13th Age again leaps into the bundle of holding. With a brand new epic deal on PDFs in the 13th Age Adventures bundle. Includes such classics of innovative dungeon busting as... The Crown Commands. With Mapfolio. High magic and low cunning. With Mapfolio. Fire and Faith. With Mapfolio. And more. Speaking more, the basic 13th Age bundle has also been revived, so newcomers can jump right into Pelgrane's love letter to classic fantasy. Featuring the core book. Thirteen Crew Ways. The Bestiary. A soundtrack. And the campaign to beat all campaigns, Eyes of the Stone Thief. Find it only in the bundle of holding. And only until Monday, December 30th. So uh, this is the point of the show now where we uh, open things up up to uh, uh, questions from our uh, sparkling, uh, dare I say, virtually translucent audience. We will attempt to restate the question for the benefit of listeners at home. Uh, If we fail, the audience, however, will remind us, because we're always tempted to just jump right in with a witticism or a quip, uh, as as good timing would, would imply, but you must prevent us from having perfect timing if we make the mis- that mistake by shouting out, restate the question. So can everyone please practice? One, two, three. Restate the question. Very Thank good. Thank you. Okay. Right. So uh, who uh, would like to first pose a question for us to restate? In the back. Uh, what is the identifiable thing or phenomena that happens in the process of playing a tabletop role playing game that we still lack a common word or vocabulary for? 
so what is the common thing that happens in uh, role playing that we lack a vocabulary term for? Um, I would say that it is the uh, sort of uh, subliminal uh, way that you switch voices between you the uh, player, you the character, or an, and the sort of in-between voice of describing what your character's doing, sort of it's uh, equivalent to like the third person narrator, narrator, uh, but with a narrated perspective in fiction, so that there's all of these different levels of voice that people adopt uh, quite uh, normally, and everybody knows when you're switching between them, even the, in the course of a sentence, and understands the difference between all those levels, that that, uh, that, that process is something that we haven't uh, talked about much or described and certainly don't have a, a term for. Yeah, I, th I think that that process, because it immediately gets into things like philosophy of play and uh, narratology, people wind up dragging it off into other terminologies from those two fields, and it winds up not particularly applying to this kind of code switching uh, that happens. And the trouble with even formulating it is the act of formulating it codifies a thing that is almost by its very nature uncodifiable, because if you slowed down to think about what level am I talking at, you wouldn't ever get anything out, and the play uh, would be badly affected by the sort of how am I talking? And you, it, it, way back in the earlies, and I don't know if any of you suffered under this, there used to be occasionally, and, and there are some games that do it as a matter of art, like Puppetland, but that everything at the table is you characters talking. Remember, you'd have a DM that would say that, and of course that would last about eight minutes. Because yeah. suddenly, why are you talking about Thacko? Right, yeah. What is, is, you know, is your character saying, I will walk around, or where are the things? No, you're not saying that. And it's, it's physically impossible to play that, that way. Even if you don't have the meta level of, this is going to look so good in the uh, Blu-ray release, which happens at my table a great deal for some reason. Um, to say nothing of the fanfic, that's a whole different conversation. But yeah, that, that ability to sort of move back and forth in perspective and, and orientation, not just in perspective, because then you can just talk about levels, but in orientation is something that's almost, I think, unique to this art form as well. Uh, another question, James. Uh, so a, an author of weird fiction may be called on you know, once to describe something indescribable, but if you're running a, a, a weird horror or science fiction campaign, you face the challenge that you may have to describe more than one discrete, differently indescribable thing. Yeah. <laughs> if you're, should you find yourself in this situation, what are some good ways to change up your descriptions of the indescribable to make them different yet still weird? The lovely intelligent James Holloway asks, how do you multiply describe the indescribable? I uh, cheat by, of course, uh, depending on those authors. And H.P. Lovecraft had to describe the indescribable numerous different times. And he had two different modes, you could even argue three. There's the one that's just a total cop-out. That's, um, uh, you know, when, uh, it, in the story The Unnameable, when Manton turns around and says to Randolph Carter, it was unnameable! And that works because the story's about a page and a half long. Uh, it does not work. Uh, there is the uh, level of, um, uh, of catachresis, uh, which is the deliberate contradiction. So you have, it's a fungus, but also a crab. It's a snake, but also a bird. It's a, a frog that seeped through the wall. And you're like, none of that makes sense. And the attempt to uh, take these sorts of um, uh, contradicting things and map them, if you pick two very loud signifiers, 
it's a rat, but also a beautiful boy. And you're like, well, I don't like any of that. Um, and I thought I liked beautiful boys, but now I'm, I'm totally off all of it. Um, and, and so that catechesis is a really great technique for making people think about the space in there that you literally can't describe, except by saying, it's not a vulture or an ant. And you're like, that did not help. Um, but now I can't think of this, uh, uh, this creature in a different way. I've thought of the, the, the space for it. The other one is uh, uh, cubism. And that is to describe it from so many different directions that you suddenly don't have a description. And Lovecraft begins that in Whisper in the Darkness where he describes a lot of different aspects of the Migo and none of them match. Like it has cilia and it's a fungus and it has wings and it has nippers and it glows and it buzzes and it throbs. And you think you know what Amigo looks like because Sandy Peterson commissioned a very nice drawing of Amigo. But if you read the story, you don't know what Amigo looks like. It's too much contradictory detail. Uh, what Wilbur Whiteley looked like after the dogs tore his stomach off is another example of lots of different descriptive elements, none of which turn out to match. And uh, even the sort of the dissection report of the elder things in Antarctica has that same quality going on. So uh, you can either do uh, the, the simple too contradictory or the too much contradictory and I think those are the, the two good ways and you can always just try the old unnameable but you really have to bring something else besides you can't describe it you also have to say that it, um, uh, it, it smells like uh, juniper and, and, and buries your, your and so you can't really focus on anything except this overwhelming uh, other sensation that literally blinds you to what it looks like something like that I think uh, gives a reason for why you cannot describe it in an identikit fashion. And, and this brings up the whole question of what is describing in a role-playing context versus what is describing in fiction, because uh, in Lovecraft or other weird authors, quite often there, it's a uh, an actual narrator, an identified person who is telling you that they can't fully tell you something. Um, but in... Uh, or, or sometimes it's just the the omniscient author loses his omniscience when it comes to the point of describing whatever this thing is. Uh, but uh, in a uh, GM context, you are describing things to the players. And so uh, it's useful to remind yourself that you are describing the experience that the characters are having. And so you can then drop down to the level of sensory effect and say, um, you uh, literally have trouble perceiving it. There's something coming at you, uh, but you're, uh, you can tell that your brain is protecting you from what it really looks like. Or, uh, yeah, it's, it's uh, sort of uh, coming at you sideways, and it seems to be uh, sort of an angle, uh, but also it uh, uh, suddenly it, it sort of smells like that... Uh, uh, that day you had at the beach as a child where you found that terrible thing and oh and now it's hitting you um, and so you can play with the sort of sensory details uh, in a way that the sort of more clinical kind of I'm describing the anatomy of a non-existent creature uh, thing we're familiar with from fiction uses you can you can do that but you can also come up with all sorts of other ways it's not that uh, because the characters meeting this thing are the ones who will later be unable to describe it. Uh, so you can just say, oh yeah, this is something you won't be able to describe to anybody. Uh, it's got uh, entrails and uh, 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 suddenly your mouth is flooded with burnt sugar and, uh, and it's hitting you. Right. Uh, next question. Um, I was wondering if uh, besides perhaps uh, violence and colonialism, there is another 
um, origin story that I've missed behind the phrase they use on the podcast quite often, the, the hated British. <laughs> so uh, the question, uh, uh, Ken, and this is clearly for you, yes. is, uh, <laughs> is why do you hate the British? Uh, why not, uh, first of all? I don't think I have to defend it. Um, the British are in the dock of history, not me. Um, why, why do I use that phrase? Uh, for two reasons. One, uh, I am an American of Irish extraction, and therefore hating the British is a thing that we do, especially in July, but we try to get some in around the year. I'm not perfect. I don't hate them 24-7, 365. But, you know, when you think about it, you're like, yeah, that's right. They are terrible. And they were terrible. Um, and the other is, uh, it was a really great line in The Simpsons when Homer is giving his name to Fat Tony's mob and he's like, Benedict Arnold. And they're like, Benedict Arnold, who sold the plans to Frost Point to the hated British? And I just love that moment in The Simpsons so very much that when I get an excuse to say the hated British, I do it. And thank goodness the British have given me ample excuses. <laughs> and it's a fun phrase because it also recalls uh, the uh, way that uh, sympathies shift when you uh, look at historical fiction, particularly uh, historical movies uh, from the f uh, 40s and 50s in Hollywood, where they will just, you know, pick a side. And so in this historical conflict, we're on the side of the Spanish, and so they're up against the hated British. And then the next time it'll be the, uh, you know, the, the uh, uh, sterling Ecuadorians against the hated Bolivians or whatever right. it is. Yeah. That, uh, so it's a great way of... Uh, poking a little bit of fun of the uh, at cultural animosity in general. Right. I, I, hate, I hate the British with love. I guess. <laughs> and, and, and less so when you're in Treadwells. Yeah. I mean, there are times and places. Sure. Yeah. Uh, next question. Uh, my local cafe has tattooed crystals, abstract art on the walls, and blocks all cell phone signal in a 30-foot radius around it. What is really behind the staff only door? <laughs> As you can tell from the applause, that was an excellent question, which we will now restate. Um, uh, uh, her local cafe has tattooed baristas, uh, abstract art on the walls, and it blocks all cell phone service uh, for 30 yards? 30 feet around the uh, cafe. So what is behind the staff-only door? Robin, this has an ineluctable Carcosan smell to it to me. So, uh, Yes, indeed. So uh, clearly on the other side of the door is, uh, is the yellow sign. And this is an outpost of uh, Carcosa. Uh, the last thing that Carcosa wants is you uh, just Instagramming out uh, the, uh, the various uh, yellow signs that are hidden in the abstract art on the walls because then it gradually loses its power that the uh, uh, yellow sign and Carcosa depend on people's uh, idea that uh, there is a normalcy uh, there is, uh, you know, that the civilization that you were responsible for helping to build by having been born into it uh, is, uh, has some sort of value to it and that a, a rationality exists that can then be a uh, uh, psychically subverted by uh, Carcosa. So uh, if suddenly uh, the yellow sign just becomes an everyday uh, image that everybody is familiar with, uh, that uh, therefore uh, it, it will gradually lose its power and then they'll have to design uh, some other emblem and that's, that's a pain. It's like when your mom discovers a meme. Right. Um, <laughs> and, so, and also you have to have the, the king and Camilla and Katsilda all have to agree on what the new sign is. Right. It's a pain. And so uh, they are... The, Clearly, they're trying to prevent the uh, influencer Instagramatization of, of, of the yellow sign so that only the most 
disease vector minds, the sorts of people who would want to be in a snobby cafe and, uh, uh, you, you know, that, uh, well, that think that personal interaction is better than, you know, hanging out with your friends on the internet. That, that sort of uh, snobbish personality that uh, their appeal uh, not only to, uh, you know, uh, a particular varietal of coffee uh, ground uh, with, with a particular grinder that doesn't burn the beans and they, they have to know the name of the, the cow that the milk came from and you know there's, uh, you know, there's artisanal uh, chocolate that those people are the ones who are the rigid people who uh, uh, have all of these received notions they're the ones who are most uh, vulnerable to having their brains cracked open uh, by Carcosa and walking out and seeing the white sky and the pulsing black stars so uh, they're probably in the basement there's uh, some actual, you know, the Carcosans are hanging out and uh, and planning uh, who they're going to go against next. But the the main thing is just to get the right sort of people in there to have their their minds uh, shattered. And also the other reason not to have Wi-Fi is if you sort of suspect that your mind is being shattered, that you can't, you know, look up, you know, suddenly. Uh, the color yellow is everywhere. What do I do? You can't do that because the signal is blocked. Can't go to the app. Um, apropos of nothing, I was uh, at the National Museum in Cuba, and I at, when I go to a museum that I don't know and I don't know the art and I'm not I don't have an agenda. I like to play little museum games. Uh, one of them is Find the Tarot. That's a great game. That'll kill time. But with this one, I was thinking, how many yellow signs can I spot? And once you ask that question, you will never be bored in a museum again. Um, so I would, I would suggest looking at the abstract art on the walls. The other possibility, and I don't want to rule out the Carcosin one, is that the cell phone disruption is an accidental effect. That there is a, a geometric uh, tangent impingement between, let's say, Dayaloth, because we're in uh, England and Ramsey Campbell is great, uh, between Dayaloth and our world, and the point that it meets just happens to be where that cafe is. And it's not so much that the cafe is a cult of Daloth, although can't rule it out, but it's like that impingement has been there, and if you went back in time, you would find that it used to be a uh, home for blind orphans, and then they would be loaned out to make ex uh, toxic chemicals and that kind of thing. And it's always been a point where sort of uh, madness and um, uh, willful blindness have just, like, scab tissue where the, where the, uh, the tangent point of Daloth uh, reaches us. And so the abstract art began as regular art and has just been folding into more abstractions. And the coffee began as regular coffee, but has been pulled gravitically towards Daloth-style coffee. And uh, the, the, bar the baristas, when they started working there, looked normal. <laughs> and some of them have had the impetus to get tattoos, and some of them have just found that they had tattoos and then remembered always having tattoos. Um, and behind the door, uh, staff only, is literally a staff. It is the single tangent line of Dayalot's geometry that intersects London at that spot. And if you looked at it, well, don't, first of all. Um, but then you, too, would uh, find yourself tattooed and uh, really, really caring about Colombian mountain-grown versus Colombian temperate zone-grown. So, so now that you have these two very convincing yet contradictory uh, explanations, the way next to check and see which one is true is see which art they draw in the foam of the latte. And if it's a yellow sign, you have one set of problems, and if it's the uh, emblem of Dayaloth, you've got another. The inexplicable geometries of Dayaloth. Yes. Also, you will go blind. So hope, hope it's the yellow sign one. I'm not here to tell you what to do. <laughs>
The best of Ask the Gown is now available at DriveThruRPG. All issues of Phoenix Magazine since 2013. That's spelled F-E-N-I-X. Can now be grabbed in special English editions. Containing stellar gaming material from our own Ken Height. And such other recurring stalwarts as Graham Davis. And Pete Nash. Also find Dice, the gorgeous photo book celebrating that classic gaming accessory. And Freeway Warrior, the series of post-apocalyptic Choose Your Adventures by Joe Dever. And if you speak Swedish, not English... That's Swedish, not English. You can delight in every original issue of Phoenix. And the new Sagebrush and Six Guns role-playing game, Western. How do you say slap leather varmint in Swedish? Uh, oddly, Google Translate refuses to help on that. That's the best of Astfageln on DriveThru. Next question. Yes. Uh, Steve. Before the intervention of Ken's time machine, uh, who used to present this podcast? <laughs> <laughs> so, before the intervention of Ken's time machine, uh, who originally presented this podcast? Well, that clearly, uh, you needed to be on a podcast with me, and you. So, I agree. So clearly, I was on the original one, and you yes. needed to. So, who who did you gazump out of this role? Right, because the podcast's secret origin story is that Robin said. Boy, winning winning awards as a podcast is easy because podcasts are all terrible. <laughs> and so Robin selected a happy-go-lucky uh, co-host, and the rest is history. Or the rest was history until I became his co-host. Um, originally, Robin, if I recall correctly, um, it was sort of a um, Spinal Tap drummer's good place sort of a situation <laughs> where there was a version of uh, uh, Will and Robin talk about stuff with Will Hindmark. That was a great show. That ran like 250 episodes, I think, 255, something like that. that Don't ask me. These are all timelines yeah. you wiped out. Right. Well, I wiped it out. <laughs> um, uh, and then um, uh, there was uh, Chris and Robin talk about stuff, but that devolved into a lot of argument about uh, Panzer tactics for some reason. That ran about eight episodes. You were happy to see that one go. Uh, um, that, that was a Primus one, yeah. Chris Primus, yeah. And again, it's not that there was a problem with Chris. It's just it was an incompatible... Podcast I only vibe. got so much material on tanks. Uh, right, so. yeah, only so much. I believe that uh, there was a Robin and Robin talk about stuff where Robin just did a silly voice. That was actually pretty good. That was a good one. Yeah, it was also known as Robin and Walter because right, yeah. was Walter Brennan was the other voice. Right, right, right. That, oh, man, that, we should bring that one back, frankly. <laughs> I'm, I'm going to go... <laughs> you guys. And uh, I guess the last one was Robin and uh, Steve talk about stuff, and Steve said, can you please get me out of this nightmare commitment, Ken? And Steve's a friend, so, you know, you do what you do. Uh, well, obviously this question was posed by a ringer. Yeah, right. <laughs> uh, can we have a non-ringer question, please? Uh, what mid-price bourbon would you recommend for those of us that want to write good, and what possible side effects might you experience if you substituted Scotch or Irish whiskey? Mm, mm. Good question. So, so, so the A part is recommend a, a mid-price bourbon, mm -hmm. and the B part is what happens if you write on Scotch or Irish whiskey instead of bourbon. Right. Right. Uh, my mid-price bourbon of choice is is Bellet bourbon. Right. That's an excellent one. Uh, my mid-price bourbon of choice for sipping bourbon, not for mixing bourbon, is Basil Hayden, which is really it, it out it outperforms it's 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 a mid price still it's it, but it outperforms I think it's it's way up there. It, it, it's a high mid price. It's a high mid price. Yeah. If you're going a little midder, maybe Buffalo Trace is not a terrible choice. Um, many many fine mid price bourbons in America. Uh, Woodford Reserve, so many choices. Um, Eagle actually is a very very economical bourbon and is very nice. The Eagle Straight. Um, so uh, with that taken care of, my theory based on my good friend Will Heinmarch, who drinks scotch and writes, 
is that uh, there is a very grave danger that your prose will be uh, lyrical and beautiful. <laughs> and uh, that your, uh, your thoughts will become excellently clear and that might work against your intention, certainly as a game designer. Um, I don't know. Uh, that's, that's my understanding from watching people uh, uh, write on scotch. Robin, what's your thoughts? Yeah, well, I have to confess that I'm a writer who occasionally has a drink, but yeah. I never drink while writing. Right. Um, and uh, basically, I think if you're, uh, if you're having a bourbon while you're writing, you can sort of kid yourself that you're enjoying sort of a, a, the flavor of something in mm -hmm. order to... Uh, distract yourself slightly from whatever uh, prose or design issue you're confronting. Whereas I think if you're going for a more traditional uh, whiskey, that you're just joining the grand tradition of drinking writers. Right. Yeah. And that uh, basically the, you're heading toward the path where your question is, is my alcoholism uh, fueling my writing or is my writing fueling my alcoholism? Right. Uh, and uh, I, again, I'm not a, a big dispenser of life advice, but uh, I think that's uh, t t to be avoided. Although the the biggest drinking writer of all, Charles Bukowski, uh, was a bottle of red wine per per night guy, and I think that betokens the actual real seriousness of, as he said, uh, climbing the stairs in order to fight with the novel. Right. Yeah. And and uh, again, you know, a bottle of wine I think opens up a different uh, sluice gate. I mean, in my experience. Uh, getting wine drunk is a totally different drunk from a vodka drunk or a bourbon drunk. And I have never tried seeing what the prose is, because like Robin, if I'm drinking, then that's my, I, my, that's my plan. <laughs> my night is set out now. Um, writing may and, not happen. And also the whole kill your darlings thing, yeah, especially right. the idea that it write, makes you write more lyrically. I suspect that means kill the stuff you wrote when you were drunk. Yeah, very um, possibly. Yeah. Uh, next question. Have you read any of the works of Diana Wynne-Jones? And if so, have you come across an analogue of Winchester? Of which? Winchester. 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 It's a place in the book Deep Secret. Okay. Based on Winchester in a one-way system that it seems if you can make about five turns in the same direction and not finish where you started. Okay. Uh, the question is, have I read or have we read the works of Diana Wynne-Jones? And is there an analogue to Winchester? Um, and my answer is that I started Diana Wynne-Jones cripplingly late. It was on me, or on perhaps the person who bought young adult books for my library system. I don't want to accuse people. Um, but I, I actually stumbled on Diana Wynne-Jones through the Tough Guide to Fantasyland, which was amazing if you haven't read it. It basically takes the piss out of the doorstop fantasy genre. And I didn't have a lot of patience with the doorstop fantasy genre before I read Tough Guide. And after I read it, it was like, well, I've literally read all of them now. Um, and, uh, and funny and short, which none of them are. And then I read Crestomancy, which I thought would have been amazing if I'd read it when I was 12. And I still really liked it, reading it at 40 or whatever I was. And so I have not yet read all of Diana Wynne-Jones, and I have not run into Winchester. Although uh, towns in the British Isles where you take five uh, one-way turns and wind up somewhere impossible in my experience, is not that unusual. Um, as, as a young lad, I had that experience in Cork, Ireland, in fact, where it was literally impossible by following traffic laws to leave the town of Cork, Ireland. <laughs> and in fairness, the town of Cork, Ireland is lovely, and you shouldn't want to leave it. But we actually had to go somewhere else, because it was, you know, my mom was in charge. So uh, we just broke the law and, and left it. But as far as I know, that's actually how Cork got founded. 
There's a bunch of people showed up, took a bunch of one-way turns, and said, "We're here." Yeah. <laughs> this looks nice. Robin, do you have Dinah Wynn Jones theories uh, or anecdotes? I do not. I'm bereft of them. Oh my goodness. Well, she should definitely be buried in uh, Westminster Abbey, and they should throw William Davenant out or whoever is in it. She's uh, amazing. Uh, next question. So, Horror on the Orient Express is the great uh, journey uh, role-playing uh, campaign. What uh, would these? What next journey would one uh, would one pick? Uh, the lovely and talented Gareth Hanrahan uh, once came up with the idea of doing a campaign based on the Grand Tour, that you were uh, uh, English fops and uh, aristocrats who uh, had more money than sense and were taking the Grand Tour through Europe and encountering ever more horrible things in the model of the Gothic, I assume. And I think that that's a, that's a great idea. Uh, the Grand Tour doesn't have a set itinerary, which sort of mitigates against it being as perfect as Orient Express, but I think that you can... Um, I have I have run, uh, let's go ahead and say, entirely unsuccessful adventures about ascending the Nile, which I thought would be strong, but it turns out the Nile is very long, and players hate it. <laughs> and I'm not going to say they were wrong to hate it. So, again, you'd, you'd think about something like that, and you'd think, well, that's a classic epic journey, but I guess the wisdom from that is have more fun different kinds of stops on your journey. And I would say that the, uh, the thing about horror, uh, uh, on the Orient Express is that people think of it as a travel campaign, but it's actually a bottle campaign because you are uh, in an enclosed space together, and that is actually what is keeping everything going because travelogues notoriously uh, lose momentum. And there's the question... Somewhere of, around yeah. the middle of the Sudan, in my yeah, experience. Right. Uh, and so the question, do we really have to, you know, when is this trip over? Are we there yet? Right? You have that problem with travel. So I would look to a situation, I would like do like, you know, the I would do Snowpiercer or something where you're uh, trapped in an environment. So it would be uh, or, you know, do the Titanic or, you know, do yeah. the space Titanic or something like that. There are a number of excellent ocean liner adventures for Call of Cthulhu as well. And, and that's, a, that's a great setting. Um, and, uh, you know, if you wanted to do it as a, as a sort of a one-shot situation, obviously the Franklin Expedition has been mined repeatedly, not least by us on the show, for the kind of doomed horror trip. Uh, I think Coronado would be another good one if you're doing a historical uh, going through looking for the seven cities of Cibola and discovering all manner of lost civilizations because of the smallpox and the Spanish uh, if, along if, the way. If you have a group who will put up with the biblical, yeah. you could do the Exodus. That would be good. Yeah, the Exodus, though, is even, even the Bible gets bored with the Exodus. Right. <laughs> it's like, and then there was 40 more years of this stuff, and now we're going to conquer Israel. Yeah. yeah! 40 years of stuff we're not telling you about. about. So that the player characters have agency to do stuff. And, 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 <laughs> and Moses still had to put up with this nonsense. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, next question. What's the next artistic movement you'd like to draw into role-playing, and what transformation to role-playing would you like to see from that? What is the next artistic moment, movement that we would like to draw into role-playing, and what transformation of role-playing would we like to see as a result of it? And by, I, I just want to clarify your question. Are you asking what artistic movement can we turn into fodder for role-playing a la Dreamhound? Or what artistic movement will influence the art of role-playing as some art movements influence other arts? Whichever way you prefer. Whichever way we prefer. Robin? Mm -hmm. 
So I, I think there's uh, fun to be had actually with the uh, the, the earthworks movement, the uh, vast site installation stuff, because that is something that uh, hasn't really been covered at all, uh, and uh, also uh, very easily ties into ley lines and uh, earth magic and all of that stuff. And so a look <coughs> at the uh, installation, mass scale installation art uh, starting in the 70s and into the 80s. Uh, you know, so why is uh, you know, Christo uh, covering uh, this uh, neighborhood in Barcelona with, uh, with yellow mylar? And uh, you know, why is Donald Judd uh, setting up an art museum literally in the middle of nowhere in Texas. And uh, uh, where's, oh, Marfa, Texas. Oh, yeah, there's yeah, nothing. Nothing going on in Marfa, that. no. Yeah, um, and so uh, I, I think that would be a lot of uh, fun to deal with. And uh, the only drawback with that is that the uh, those figures are comparatively recent and have not been extensively mythologized and uh, made subject to biographies the way that, say, the Surrealists uh, right. were. I feel like architecture is not yet enough of a thing in uh, role-playing games uh, just as an art form and then you can almost you know you're spoiled for choice in terms of crazy architects uh, you can do for example Frank Lloyd Wright's life is a, a Tim Powers novel that no one has bothered to write yet but it's very much one man versus fire um, uh, and the, and Mr. Wright was let's say an eccentric fellow in his own right and so you can have an all manner of sort of um, uh, Hesketh and low evil druids type situation going on uh, with with a Frank Lloyd Wright, and then of course you, once you put Wright in, you can do Sullivan and Root and all the Chicago scene, or you can go into the moderns. Um, you can have the the hated um, uh, uh, Corbusier uh, Bauhaus that that opposes Frank Lloyd Wright in, in all things, um, and so that's that's always good to have a bunch of bad guys. Um, and then sacred architecture just is great, and I think that role playing, if you're talking about the technology of role playing, less the philosophy. The technology of role-playing on maps and grids is so fun and its own weird little hobby in its own way that combining that with sacred architecture should be kind of a no-brainer. And if you are operating on a situation where it's not just what spell you're casting, but where on the grid you're standing when you cast it, and are you able to build a Vesica uh, Pisces or a, a pentagram or whatever in the course of the activity... I think that makes that that adds an, a, a level of fun and and graphic interaction that many games don't have. Um, and so, I think if you're paying attention to architecture and also to a grid, that could be a, a sort of a fun uh, overlap. And as both uh, Chinatown and Scooby Doo teach us, the fundamental villains of the modern world are land developers. Exactly. Um, and so, uh, this gives you uh, all sorts of opportunity for the. Uh, the ground level real estate chicanery that is required to realize the visions of all of these great architects because it's you know it's one thing to just design uh, as a on a piece of paper the axis mundi of chicago but it's quite another another to displace the people from the neighborhood and to buy the land cheap. And, and to get it and that's done. where that's where you get the mob activities and you have the you know the high and low within uh, the city and also of course uh, architects are all very strong characters. Yeah, there's no uh, there's no personally boring ar architects nope. because they 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 know how you should live uh, in their box that they made for you. I think you mean space. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you.
Have you found the yellow sign? The King in Yellow, Robert W. Chambers' unearthly book, has inspired millions of readers since the death of the Gilded Age. A beautiful new edition from Arc Dream Publishing brings fresh potency to its stories of poisonous romance. This deluxe hardback features gold foil embossing and a leather cover in the black snakeskin pattern that Chambers described. A foreword by John Scott Tynes sets the stage. Annotations by Kenneth Height elucidate the secrets and histories of every tale. Samuel Araya's full-color plates and charcoal illustrations evoke the otherworldly weirdness of Carcosa. Every print order comes with the PDF digital edition. The annotated King in Yellow insinuates itself into our reality in July 2019. The ball begins. It is time to don your mask. Join the masquerade at shop.arcdream.com. You've had your hand up a couple of times, so... Uh, yeah. Um, before you guys took over their skins, what did Robin King used to do? <laughs> uh, before we took over their skins, which I think is a very hateful way of putting it... Yeah. There are, there are also several important internal organs that we needed yes, to right. continue along. It's a symbiosis, not a parasitism. <laughs> Look it up. What did Robin and Ken used to do? Uh, Robin? Well, uh... Since I am now a, a, a paragon of good, therefore I must have been terrible previously. Right. Uh, so uh, I assume I was laying the groundwork for uh, the return of global authoritarianism. And so uh, now that I'm a- appropriately rebalanced, and, and my uh, work is uh, here to subtly uh, uh, challenge that. And how specifically were you doing that as a dramatic arts uh, student and master in Toronto, laying the groundwork? I'm curious about that. Well, that, that, was, that was just the cover story. Right, I see, right, okay. Very Bruce Wayne Batman. Yeah. Right, okay, except evil Batman, not good right. Batman. Well, uh, right. you know, I, I, I worked in a video store because that didn't require a lot of intellectual effort that I could be using to uh, subvert uh, the, the world's uh, intellectual underpinning. It was as though you were the, a spider in the center of some kind of web. Right, <coughs> right. Exactly. Okay. And uh, uh, Ken was just a happy-go-lucky uh, petroleum geologist. Just a man who went and found the secret places of the earth and the powers within. <laughs> Just a happy-go-lucky tapper of billions of unexploited life forces and their energies. Just a guy. <laughs> so, nothing, really. Yep. <clears throat> uh, next question. Pitch and cast the Night's Black Agents TV show. Pitch and cast the Night's Black Agents TV show. Robin? Well, there's someone we should have asked that question yeah, to. Yeah, right, yes. Uh, I think there have been some discussions. Um, who do we want to uh, get? Who's just left a TV series who... Uh, I mean, I guess first we have to pitch it, because right. then we know who's in it. And I guess the question is, is it an open-ended, serialized, um, uh, your mission this time, oh, it, it, it's, um, uh, it turns out that this Mexican cartel leader is actually a vampire, go and kill him. Mission Impossible-style show. Or is it a show that is more sort of um, ultraviolet, it, one of the inspirations for Night's Black Agents, in which you are going deeper into the, the world of, of, of politics and finance and discovering that vampires are everywhere and they have an apocalyptic plan for mankind. And I think either of those would make a great show. The uh, Mission Impossible structure, I feel, is, is underutilized, even by Mission Impossible now. Um, but you can't deny that the kids love a good continuity arc. So I would say my pitch is that it begins as a Mission Impossible series of one-offs, and a la Veronica Mars, uh, during the course of your missions, you are uncovering evidence of a larger conspiracy. 
and that the larger conspiracy is the big bad, the force that uh, that you are working to stop. Um, and uh, depending on um, how you pitch it, you could you could use uh, vampirism as a metaphor for oh so many things that are going on in the world today. Um, well, you might say that uh, because vampires don't show up on surveillance, that they are behind the surveillance state because they are the people that created it as a way of keeping track of everyone. And in, in the way that you know the the Uber's uh, CEO has the big board showing all the Ubers driving around. Everyone who's ever been bit has vampire uh, blood that can be activated in them, and you can sort of see them moving around on the big screen. Um, lots of lots of possibilities for that. I, I think that if you if you begin it as a serial show and then expand it out into a overthrow the big conspiracy, you can get the two to three season arc that Netflix seems to like. Yeah, I think I figured out how to do this. That it's uh, so this is uh, cable or streaming, and the, uh, the the pitch to the to the network first of all, it's twenty four in reverse. <laughs> um, and so that it's about being pursued and so uh, each season is, is a pursuit and we're going to do it true detective style where it's a different um, person being pursued each season therefore we can uh, get more expensive stars to sign on to each just do a, a season Right. so season one is Charlize Theron being chased across Europe by vampires right? and then it sort of establishes the baseline right and then uh, season two is uh, uh, Rami Malek uh, being uh, chased uh, through Asia uh, by uh, 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 demons from the underworld, and uh, season uh, season three is uh, Woody Harrelson in a uh, post-apocalyptic, post-vampire environment, running the resistance against them. So you you know suddenly season three you shift up the concept a bit, and uh, and it's the uh, connection of the. Uh, and then you sort of, uh, I don't know, you could do like Frankensteins in, uh, in season four and, uh, uh, you know, have, uh, have a- a- Abigail Breslin, now that she's a little older, get somebody uh, unexpected or, or Zendaya or somebody. I think Zendaya would be, be terrific. Yeah. Yeah. I think, I think Zendaya could play two characters. She plays a vampire hunter who is somehow involved in the stories of all three, right? So you meet her when she's a sort of a seemingly helpless but turns out to be badass uh, ally of Charlize Theron. And then she shows up again in Asia with Rami Malek, but somehow acts like the first season didn't happen. And you're like, is, is there multiple Zendayas? Are we so lucky? And then in the third season, Zendaya, it turns out, is sort of the other version of Survivor. That You've got your Woody, Al- Woody Harrelson, not Woody Allen, he's dead. Um, Woody Harrelson but also Zendaya. So it's like the stand where there's the two factions of, of society that are... And, and you're like, oh, do we root for Woody Harrelson, who is, after all, our protagonist and is a good old boy uh, fighting um, monsters? Or do we root for Zendaya, who has been mysteriously present in the other two seasons, but seems to have a weird vampire vibe in this one? And you can, you know, flip it all kinds of different ways. You know, Zendaya is not so much the big bad, but as a possible bad, I think it's a very strong choice because I think she could play threatening in a way that she hasn't done. Uh, next question. So, when staking a vampire, if you run out of wooden stakes, would a normal tusk be useful? <laughs> <laughs> right. Uh, the, the question is, when staking a vampire, if you are out of wooden stakes... Can you use a narwhal tusk? And, and the narwhal tusk notoriously has uh, healing properties. Yes. Uh, so it's what you stake a vampire with if you want the vampire to come back. Yeah. Uh, it's, it's a reverse stake, actually. Uh, and it just pins him to the wall long enough for you to negotiate with him. 
and then uh, restores the vampire to uh, a previous state. Now, you right. could argue that it restores him so much that it heals him of vampirism. But then he has a big chest wound. Yeah. <laughs> so if, if there's a va- someone who you liked before they were turned into a vampire, uh, you could use your narwhal tusk for that and then, you know, have... A, you know, a surgeon standing by. Right. There'd be a, a literal resurrection sequence when you stab them with the va- narwhal tusk slash alicorn, whatever it yeah. happens to be. Um, Future scholars of this podcast will wonder why that question was asked. Yeah, well, <laughs> they can Google it. Yeah. Right. Uh, we just got the five-minute sign, so do we have one great question or two okay questions? You previously said that if Donald Trump became president, it would prove time travel. What is the threat to humanity that President Trump is supposed to fix? Uh, the, the question is, I have previously said that if Donald Trump becomes president, it will be proof of time travel. What is the threat to humanity that Donald Trump is supposed to fix? Now, first, I'd like to preface this by saying I am not the only time traveler. <laughs> You're the one out of one well, That's right. Well... That's what the that, that, that's just the ones that were asked for the survey, <laughs> um, and so uh, and so the the, the question is um, uh, to take it on its purely straight up honest face, which seems like missing the point of the question. What would be worse than Donald Trump? We will find out. I promise. You. <laughs> um, uh, someone someone competent running the right, same playbook. Right. I mean yeah. that's I mean that's that's the that's the great. If, if, God forbid we be serious at any point. But we have lucked out as a nation that the last two relatively ideologically driven presidents have been very bad at presidenting. That um, if Obama had been good at presidenting, if he'd been a governor instead of a congressman um, and, a, and a senator, uh, holy crap, what he could have done with a veto-proof majority. And if Donald Trump had you know, the capacity to stack cubes, uh, much less do anything, what he could do with the, with the agenda and the possibilities that he presents for American politics will indeed be terrifying once Josh Hawley is president in eight years. But in terms of immediate moments, I think you have to say that probably in that time continuum, Donald Trump is somehow a necessary caustic for the body politic to withstand the trauma of the Cubs winning the World Series. (laughs) And that in a world where the Cubs have won the World Series, there must be a purgation of some sort. And that it is almost a metaphysical question. Also, Hillary Clinton is a reptoid. Um, so now, those are the possibilities. Now, um, uh, this is normally not my bailiwick, but I right. happen to be having a flash forward uh, to the future timeline that Ken erased. Thank God. And it's not quite that macro, actually. Okay. Is that uh, when the aliens came down, they said, we're, we've come down and we're going to... Uh, create an otherwise a utopia and solve your climate change problem, but we are going to need to devour the President of the United States, <laughs> Kristen Bell. <laughs> and Ken... No wonder that future was forbidden for me. It's all coming back now. And so Ken rushed to his time machine, and, right. and the rest, as we say, is, is, cur- is current events. Right. <laughs> 
Stuff having once again been talked about, it's time to thank our sponsors. Atlas Games. Hell Grain Press. Arc Dream. Dork Tower. And Pro Fantasy Software. Music, as always, is by James Semple. Audio editing by Rob Borges. Get your priority question asking access by supporting our Patreon at patreon.com backslash Ken and Robin. Snag Ken and Robin apparel and other erudite merchandise at tpublic.com slash user slash Ken Robin. Check out our hottest new design, Carcosa Fandango. On Twitter, he's at Kenneth Height. And he's at Robin. See you next time when once again we will talk about stuff.